Welcome to Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs podcast. It's five-year mission to explore Star Trek arcs and themes, seek out new story directions, and boldly tell stories that no one has told before. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Hey, before we jump into this episode, I just want to take a second to let you know how you can support this podcast. Between the three podcasts that I do, there's a fair amount of prep time, time to record and mix the episodes, and I prefer to not have to use ads. So the best way you can support my efforts is to buy one of my books. They're all available on Amazon, but the best way to pick them up is on bookshop.org. Bookshop is a website designed to support local bookstores. You can select a local store and they get a cut of the profits. All the extra money, if you don't select a bookstore, goes into a pot that supports all local bookstores. Personally, I chose my local store, Mysterious Galaxies. You can choose to support any store in the U.S. that is a partner to support, and there are thousands. This is a win-win-win. Support the podcast, support your local bookstore, and you get a book in the end. They're pretty entertaining, at least I think so. From my Splatterpunk Award-nominated eco-horror novel Ring of Fire to the satire of the vegan revolution with zombies, Nazi skinhead werewolves and boot boys of the Wolfreich, to the haunted punk rock tour van and punk rock ghost story. And my latest release is a science fiction novel, Goddamn Killing Machines. Think of The Dirty Dozen meets Philip Cave Dick. They're all available right now on bookshop.org. Also, don't forget to hit like buttons and share episodes that you enjoy and help spread the conversations. Subscribe and talk with us, and uh, now on to the show. All right, welcome to Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs. I have a very special guest beaming to us from the United Kingdom, uh, the author of a lot of Star Trek novels. (laughs) Um, uh, Una McCormick, welcome to the Star Trek Story, Myth, and Arcs podcast. We're going to talk about all your work, but eventually we're going to talk spoilers for your Picard novel and how that came to be and how it was constructed. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right, let's talk about your origin story with Star Trek and science fiction, because mm-hmm. like me, you're, uh, you're a fan of all science fiction, uh, mm-hmm. not just Star Trek, and I'm wondering how you got into it. Yeah, so uh, I'm of a certain age that uh, growing up in Britain, Star Trek, the original series, really wasn't on very much. Uh, So growing up in the 70s, I I didn't really get to see the original series. And um, really, my introduction to Star Trek is the the movies. Uh, So um, they're coming out when I'm maybe about, I'm I'm just sort of hitting 11 or 12. So they're they're coming out during my uh, teens. So exactly that kind of time when I'm, I'm kind of wanting to watch science fiction. And then once I'm hooked, which I pretty much am straight away, because uh, I love spaceships, basically, <laughs> um, then uh, um, it's it was an easy sell to get me to watch Next Generation. It, easy sell, but once again, there I am stuck in Britain. Uh, and uh, we have three, well, we've got four television channels by then. Um, terrestri- uh, d- uh, we've got four terrestrial channels satellite television is just arriving uh, and that's where you can watch the next generation uh, we don't have that in our house so I'm, I'm slowly going to a blockbuster video shop which once a month gets a, a tape in mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like many many sort of science fiction uh, fan teenagers I'm going home and watching this repeatedly on a Friday night whilst uh, the rest of my friends are out clubbing. So uh, that's my kind of introduction to uh, to Star Trek. And then once I got onto Next Gen uh, and the episodes are coming so slowly, the way I'm kind of filling those gaps is I'm going to the library and I'm uh, getting the paperback uh, novels. So I'm reading Next Generation novels from about uh, when I'm about 17 or 18 onwards. So people like Jean Laura, Peter David and so on. So that's sort of how I'm getting into... Um, Star Trek, always been a Doctor Who fan, Blake Seven fan. Those are the things we're watching in Britain. Star Cops as well. Um, and then I guess uh, Deep Space Nine arrives just when I'm at college, at university, uh, and I won't go anywhere near it because I'm a Babylon Five fan. <laughs> that, that's one of those things that you you know you commit to, 
uh, and then you you sort of spend the entire rest of your life eating humble pie. Uh, so I absolutely refuse to watch uh, Deep Space Nine. A friend of mine lent me his tape of Way of the Warrior, and he said, "You know, you really must." I'm going, "No, no, it's not. It's not Straczynski. I know this. Uh, it's absolute nonsense. It's rubbish." He lends me Way of the Warrior, and we're about six minutes in, and I'm I'm ringing him up, going, "Bring me, bring me the rest of the tapes immediately." <laughs> I must watch all of this because about six minutes in, I think we get our first sight of Garrick and that's it. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a lost woman. So, uh, so that's, so that's me with Star Trek really. And, and once I'd gotten to Deep Space Nine, I'm kind of, I'm sucked in. <laughs> I had kind of a similar thing with Deep Space Nine because yeah. I didn't watch the first couple seasons. Mm-hmm. I just, that time in my life, I was very involved with punk rock. I was going to shows and, I've always yeah. been a Star Trek fan, and somehow I just missed it. And then my freshman year of college, I was um, I watched The Search, the episodes where they found, mm. you know, first, mm-hmm. and I was like, whoa, this is great. This is great. Yeah, yeah. I got to go back and get into it. So I had the same kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, in, uh, um, I know that you're involved somewhat in the academic world and scholarship towards science mm-hmm. fiction. How did you get involved with, with that specifically? Uh, I guess, um, I, so what I was doing, um, was writing fan fiction. Now, I, again, I'm a kind of generation that, uh, you couldn't really professionalize, uh, these kinds of hobbies. So if, I mean, um, my PhD is in sociology and I, I did quite a, quite a, a, a very straightforward sociology PhD about large government surveys and, uh, this kind of thing. I managed to quote Ursula Le Guin in it because it was about it was about narrative and bureaucracy, of my abiding themes actually. Um, and um, I, I you, you couldn't really get away with saying no. I, I'm just going to do a PhD on Tolkien because you right. couldn't do it. The, the people weren't there. The people who would supervise you were were my generation. We had to come through. So whilst I was kind of doing these things that I was only tangentially interested in, or I was having to disguise my interests. I was also writing a lot of fan fiction and getting involved in the quite early scholarship on that. So the scholarship on fan fiction is kind of emerging from about um, 95, 96 onwards, which is kind of when I'm doing my PhD, my master's, then my PhD. Um, And then sort of, I I kind of, uh, I I think what happens is once you've got a PhD and once you've got an academic post, which I eventually got, I I became a lecturer in creative writing actually. you, you find that you're in a position to, to just say, well, actually, these are my interests. So I'm going to start writing about these and, and, and building those networks and doing that work. So I've written on fan fiction. I've written on um, written a little on Le Guin. I've written on Vonda McIntyre. Uh, I've, I've written on um, the way that women uh, write fan fiction to retool authors like Tolkien and sort of inscribe themselves into um, heteronormative and patriarchal texts and this kind of thing. Um, and just uh, devouring and reading a lot of science fiction. Uh, uh, that's that's kind of how I've ended up with a with a sort of ac- academic career. I'm not an academic anymore. I, I stopped that um, to become a full time writer about a year and a half ago. Um, but I'm still doing ap- academic work. I've just um, done a collection of essays on Lois McMaster Bujold. Just co-edited a collection on her work. Uh, and uh, got plenty more kind of projects lined up. I've just announced actually, uh, uh, I'm, I'm working with a, a university press in Britain called Goldsmiths Press. Uh, we're, we're setting up a new imprint about um, to publish intersectional feminist science fiction. So that's my kind of my current project that I've got underway. So yeah, it, it, it was sort of like all these things. I sort of ended up as a, a novelist by accident. Uh, I ended up by a, as a, you know, writing about science fiction by accident. <laughs> But it was all the things I wanted to do anyway. Well, and, and I've found that a lot of the mm-hmm. best writers of the of, of great tie-in fiction for these franchises, especially Star Trek, if you look at, like, for example, David Mack or Greg mm-hmm. Cox or yourself, it's people who are well-read in the genre outside of the franchise who mm-hmm. um, are learned and, and well-read of mm-hmm. authors like Le Guin and McIntyre and, like, the wider sure. scope. I think, I think I've you know, seen that very, very consistently. So that's cool. And I think it's really great that you do that. And, and that, that new press you're talking about, I saw your announcement about that. That sounds mm-hmm. great. 
I hope so. Yeah, we're very excited. <laughs> I love having a science fiction as well. Um, I'm excited to check out, before we get really into mm -hmm. to your tie-in work, I am very excited to check out your original novel, The Undefeated. Can you give us just a little bit on that? Um, yeah, so that that was lovely because uh, the editor I worked with on the Star Trek novels, the, the guy who originally commissioned me, uh, was a guy called Marco Palmieri, who was the editor on the Trek book range for a very long time. Uh, and we we worked together and then he he left Simon Schuster, he went somewhere else and we said we will all, we must work together again. We had so much fun, uh, you know, really admired, really admired his sort of um, uh, ability to tell a story, actually a really great editor. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were sort of chatting on Twitter, actually, and, and said we must work together, we must work together. And I said, do you know what I've always wanted to do? I've always wanted to do a feminist high plains drifter in space. And he said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll commission that. <laughs> uh, and he did. <laughs> so it's a, it's a feminist high plane structure in space, I guess, is the, uh, um, it, it's a kind of little reflection on, uh, it's a bit of Martha Gellhorn in there as well. It's about a, a journalist who's a war reporter married to a famous novelist, uh, divorced from a famous novelist. Um, so it's about yeah uh, that's that's the best i can describe it feminist high plains drifter in space <laughs> <laughs> that sounds excellent um yeah and um i'm a late in life convert whovian so i am uh <laughs> interested in of course of course you wrote uh uh some doctor who stuff um who's your favorite doctor what was your in with with doctor who and oh well i you know i'm the i'm that kind of age in Britain where Doctor Who was just was just on you know it was it was Saturday tea time it was everybody watched it because there weren't any TV channels so that's what you watched on a Saturday night you you watched you watched Doctor Who in a whole lineup uh so it was it was just on my my dad was a fan of science fiction so you know he loved things like The Prisoner uh TV science fiction so Doctor Who was was always on and you just watched it and watched it and watched it and uh I I think my earliest memory is Pertwee. Um, there's a story called Planet of the Spiders. And I always joke that I, I wasn't scared of the spiders. I was scared of the Buddhists. <laughs> it gave me a lifelong fear of Buddhists. Um, and then, I, you know, you, you remember all of Tom Baker, but, but actually my doctor was, uh, I think my doctor was Peter Davison. I think just because the, the stories of his first season are, are really arresting and, and really vivid and unusual. Uh, and uh, I was at the kind of, I was probably about 10, and that's a very, very, very fertile age for your imagination, I think. Uh, you're, you're just getting more outward thinking and able to understand more complex story, uh, and they just hit at the right time. So I, I love Peter Davidson's performance. He's a really good actor, uh, and I, I love the stories as well. So Davidson, I would say, was my doctor, and I just stuck with it, and, um, you know, you never give up on Doctor Who, really. It's like supporting a really rubbish football club. You know they'll come good in the end. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think um, it's funny. Uh, uh, David Tennant is probably my favorite doctor because I got into it with the new mm. series. But um, uh, in, a, in a strange way, Peter Capaldi just... Um, I just loved his run as the mm. doctor. Every, and whether the stories were great or not, I thought he was perfect. And uh, He's amazing. And he, he sort of really lived. I mean, first of all, it's incredibly sweet that he's a massive Doctor Who fan and had a, had a letter in Doctor Who magazine when he was a lad. Um, but then I think he's really done that thing, uh, which they all do to some extent, but I, I think Peter Capaldi has really embraced this. He's just lovely to people. You know, he will yeah. he will just turn up at children's hospitals and you know give people presents and 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 make their encounter with with you know if they meet the doctor it will be magical and special and and um he's just all around fantastic a, re a really good actor does he have an oscar or something mad um didn't he do like a very small film or something he's he's got yeah. i think so i know this might be something i've pulled out of it out of my head maybe i've just given him an oscar in my heart <laughs> yeah. but he's he's great somebody fact check that <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah he's he's terrific yeah i thought he was great um so you've written for uh you obviously started with fan fiction that was like a thing mm -hmm. that 
and and you were able to like make it real how's that transition in your mind like I'm sure you're still pinching yourself every time you work on these. Right? Yeah, I can't. I can't believe I get to do this all day. It's just. It's just pretty amazing. I mean, I was doing it all day anyway. So <laughs> now, I'm kind of doing it in a sustainable way is just. It, it's just incredible. I mean, I was writing fan fiction from drawing stickmen cartoons as a kind of kid. You know, six or seven. Then writing little stories, mostly Blake Seven actually, which was my my real love. Uh, and then, you know, the minute you watch Deep Space Nine and you, you get to the end of it, I assume I can do spoilers for Deep Space Nine. It's long enough now. I've yeah. got to fix this. I've got to get this right. So I'm, I'm just not happy. I'm assuming and if someone's listening to this podcast, they're uh, serious. They're, they're probably okay, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I just had to fix it. I couldn't I couldn't leave Cardassia like that. I couldn't bear it. So, um, so I've sort of spent 20 odd years writing through the trauma of that. And that's that's what most of my novels uh, are about. So kind of the reconstruction of post-war Cardassia and it's um, uh, finding its way out of that kind of moral um, hole that it finds itself in. Uh, so, um, yeah, I just, that's you know, it's... Question. Why Cardassia? What, what what was so fascinating to you about Cardassia? I mean... Oh, Garrick, absolutely Garrick. Okay. What, what kind of, what kind of civilization uh, could create a person like this? Uh, and uh, just wanting to explore that in all its nuances, but I, I think also it was a. Uh, remember, we're, we're we're still in the um, the nineties, mm -hmm. um, the late nineties. I I think it was. Uh, I think I think I've said any any kind of thinking European has to think through the 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 sort of history of the the last half of the well of the twentieth century. And reconstruction and, from World War Two. And... Yeah, exactly that. And 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 what led, uh, um, what caused the rise of fascism? Uh, you know, it's very timely again. Um, what what are the conditions under which um, countries decide to annihilate themselves? I mean, it, it's playing out. I I feel as if it's playing out in Britain at the moment. And I wanted to understand that and um, learn why. And more importantly, I wanted to kind of map the route to reconstruction uh, and, and the way that a nation confronts its past and um, deals with the traumas that it's inflicted on itself and, and others more significantly. And how you move beyond that into, into hope and peace and um, uh, uh, connectivity, I guess. So oh. that's what interested me. Yeah, and the roots of it are all there in the in Deep Space Nine with the relationship mm. between the, the Bajorans and the Cardassians mm. and and um, you know I'm like you I'm one of those people who watches and because I have writer brain mm. I start thinking like mm. well what does that say about this and what does that say about that and you know um, so I, I do a lot of the same things yeah um, and and also just particularly the 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 the, the context and the pathway that creates people so i was watching um i've not watched it in ages actually i was watching the wire again today robert hewitt wolf's um you know the garrick addiction story and there's a guy in the in the final act uh that last scene with bashir and um uh garrick uh in in the reformat or whatever it was, the scene opens with a guy walking he's a guy in kind of a it looks a bit like jim hadar actually he just he's in the background he walks through a door you see him walk past and then he sees someone and he kind of greets them and pats his heart. And you never, he's only ever background. And I'm like, who is this guy? What's his story? Who's he come to meet? Why is he there? And he's only ever backdrop. Cause obviously I've, I've told a lot of stories about Garrick and Bashir. Now I'm telling the stories about the guy who walks fast in the background, but right. Yeah. Writer brain does that. You, you want to know what brought these people here. Uh, and you start spinning the story, I think. Oh yeah. And, and, and um, I admitted to you before we started recording that I, I have not uh, read your Cardassia stuff. I'm really looking forward to it, partially because Bashir and Garrick are my two favorite characters mm. um, on Deep Space Nine, and Deep Space Nine is my favorite of, of, of Star Trek. So Quite right. <laughs> uh, so I know we're on similar brain there, and I have a feeling yeah. <laughs> they will speak to me. Um did you get a chance to see the social hour they where they did that little uh, audio drama where they uh... yeah oh yeah oh 
God, it was bliss. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. It's just so lovely. At last, we get to see them as yeah. as what we always knew they were. <laughs> you guys knew they were. Um, and I think, um, uh, I guess you've seen the documentary about making Deep Space Nine. And, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, they, they I, I got about... to see it in the theatre here, which was great. Was oh, that's, I saw it at, um, oh, I, I'll, I'll one up on you. I, I saw it at its premiere, uh, a Star Trek convention. And and uh, I had the uh, I, I was in a because I was a guest there. I somehow wangled my place in the VIP seats, <laughs> and I had most of the cast of Deep Space Nine to my left, and behind me, behind me was Walter Koenig. <laughs> oh wow! That's so, a- uh, so that was I was probably sitting there going, oh no, don't don't <laughs> chuck me out. So um, but there's a there's a moment in that where I think Ira Burst says we we missed the boat on this and we we should have gone for it, um, and. Yeah, they they should have, but that was that was television in the nineties. Yeah, it, yeah, it seems it seems crazy now, doesn't it? But there we were. Yeah, yeah, I think that they yeah definitely realized that. Mm. Well, Garrick, um, because of his mystery and all the mystery that's involved mm. with him, uh, it does make him one of the most fascinating characters. Mm. The episode that I recently revisited for him, we did an episode about Star Trek and horror. Uh, of this podcast and my my co-host for that episode we watched we rewatched the episode where uh the Tarek Noor where um with the was basically the slasher film with Garrick M Potnor M Potnor M Potnor yeah I knew it Sean you were going to say when you said Garrick and Hora M Potnor but uh uh watching that episode that last scene where he shows his regret is um one of the most emotional Mm. themes of the whole series and and like you just really andrew robinson really put weight and depth into that character in a way oh it's just just amazing his memoirs worth reading um the this the bit i love about that scene that exchange with o'brien is Mm. i think if it was if this was next gen or voyager they would end with a kind of full rapprochement. They would they would have a meeting of minds, uh, and uh, you, you know there would there, there wouldn't be an embrace, but there'd be a you know buddies. Not Deep Space Nine. It's like yeah, I'll see you, and it's like not if I see you first. You know, it's just great. So I'm not. You're clearly uh, not safe. Uh, so I, and I love that that um, people people are. are, are trying to connect but not always managing it because they're quite damaged in various ways i think on deep space nine um so i love that okay one last question before we get into the picard novel um which is um what is and all the franchises i kind of sort of said this before but of all the franchises you've written for what is the most special part about writing in each just a little bit of, of, of each starting with doctor who Oh well, Doctor Who's just brilliant fun. It, it's it's anything goes, and uh, you just have a whale of a time uh, writing Doctor Who. It's it's just a hoot from start to finish. You you've just got to play. I remember someone saying to me once that Doctor Who sucks up story. Yeah, it's it's like you know you're trying to come up with ideas and ideas, so you're constantly having to generate something fresh. And yet to keep that basic format of, of you know, a, ma- a madman in a box. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, you've, I, th- I think particularly since Russell T. Davis sort of got his hands on it, uh, you feel it's got this kind of energy uh, and excitement and, and verve, and a little a little dark edge, because there's always a dark edge in a, a Russell T. Davis script. Um, but it's just a kind of boundless um, inventiveness. Uh, and, and you feel like you've really got to bring your game to that. Uh, so that's why I like writing Doctor Who. Also, it's Doctor Who, yay! <laughs> At Lake Seven. Oh, my my first love, the 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 show I learned how to write from. Writing those characters, those characters are just formative on my imagination. They're just so important to me. Um, uh, the the voices, the dynamics, uh, the bitching. <laughs> The way the stories are constructed, I learned a lot about story construction of, um, you know, dovetailing A and B plots. And um, if they don't dovetail, then at least they must have a thematic connection. Um, making ensembles work. Uh, all of this I learned from observing Blake Seven, which I just adore. 
uh, and and to have loved a show for that long. I mean, I started watching that when I was about ten. Um, you know, wrote fan fiction when I was about fifteen or sixteen. Um, to to get to write a script that that the actors deliver, which I've done for Big Finish, I've done audio drama for them. Just incredible! It's like a wow. How did I get to do that? You know. Now, with all the fan fiction that you wrote when you were young, have you ever have you adapted any of those and turned those into professional? No, 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 no. No, you've got to be really careful about that. So I've 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 never done that. No, I've sort of uh, I've I've sort of left it. I, my fan fiction it's it's quite a sort of open secret that you know my fan fiction's online. But no, you've got to be really careful about that. You just you just leave it and move on. Um. So um. So no, I've 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 never done that. Um, and usually it's it's not quite what they were. I think if you're um, a lot of fan fiction is very 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 introspective, and uh, when when you're reading fan fiction, you're quite happy to sit for fifteen thousand words, <laughs> just reading somebody noodling about in their head about their emotions. But it, it doesn't make fifty minutes of exciting audio drama. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not you're not necessarily that's not necessarily what you're writing. But a, a character um, introspection and psychological. Um, motivation i think is what i'm interested in doing and that comes from a fan fiction well that comes from every sensibility doesn't it but you could you could do it for ages in fan fiction <laughs> now obviously you, you're not going to give us any story ideas but are there any franchises that you are just you would just die to write for that you haven't had the chance to already uh i never got a chance to write for firefly um which which i think would have been a lark uh and then um Tim LeBond just did it. Tim LeBond just released a, a Firefly novel, so they're they're back in the Firefly novel business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose so. Um, I guess I guess the thing I would love to do, because uh, I've written reams and reams of fan fiction, is the minute that they start doing uh, licensed novels set on Middle Earth, I'll be in like a flash. <laughs> it's like. Gosh, yeah. Get me in, get me in. Let me do my Fall of Numenor novel that I've always wanted to write. Um, that's my thwarted PhD. I would have, uh, if I'd been able to do a creative writing PhD, I'd have done a novel set during the Fall of Numenor. So that's, uh, if anyone wants to commission that, <laughs> right. I'm here to write it. So um, I'd, lo I'd love to do something. But I've written reams of Tolkien fan fiction, just tons of it. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. So those would be the big ones, and then um, there's a um, there's a short-lived TV show called Jericho, uh, which I I would have loved to have wrapped up, and then maybe I, I guess Babylon Five or something like that. But um, you know they, that's pretty self-contained. So uh, I'd rather have had his version than mine. So um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, we're going to get into your Picard novel. Um, and so from this point on, we're going to assume, uh, that you, that listeners have read, um, Picard, uh, Last Best Hope, I believe mm -hmm. is the title. And, um, right. I, it's been, it's been a couple months. You were in the, you were finishing up a project. I read it in, mm -hmm. I think, July. So, um, but I do have notes to keep me back on track. On the well, I, I never remember books after I've written them. So this is going to be interesting. <laughs> No, I'm really joking. I've, I've flipped. I've flipped through it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, well, this project um, must have been. Now you've written Picard before, right? Mm. So you've thought about Picard before. Mm. Um, but how did this project specifically come to you? Because this is a big deal. Writing the prequel, mm. going into Patrick Stewart's return to the character after all these yeah. years. Uh, how did this one happen? <laughs> well, they they asked me, and and I sort of didn't eat their hands. <laughs> was, right. They said, "Uno, would you like to do this one?" I was, Christ, yes, <laughs> God, absolutely, of course, I want to do it. Um, you know, please, please, immediately, let me do this. Yeah, I just, yeah, that, yes. I mean, I I've been working with those guys for a long time now, and um, done lots of books with them. Uh, and they decided that I was I was the one that they wanted to do this one, um, and I'm just really grateful. It was just it was a uh, it was absolutely amazing from start to finish. It was just uh, uh, it was a joy to be involved. Uh, um, what happens when you do a project like this is that you um, you work very closely with uh, the writers' room, and in particular, I was I was working with the uh, co-creator Kirsten Beyer, 
who herself has yeah, a background. A background in um, uh, Thai writing. Yeah, she wrote a lot of the Voyager uh, novels, Hassan and Shafsta, the, the relaunch kind of post um, show novels. Um, so uh, I was familiar with, with Kirsten and her work. Uh, and what she does is uh, part of what she does, as well as, you know, uh, co-creating shows, being a scriptwriter and uh, all these things, is she liaises with the people who are doing the Thai material, whether it's the books or the comics or whatever, and tries to hook them up with the show. And we'd worked on a together on a discovery novel. I'd done a novel about Tilly, which again was a kind of yeah, yes, please, yeah, awesome character. Um, and Kirsten and I got very well, and uh, you know had a very a, a very good working relationship. So um, the chance to work with her, I, I think, as I've as I've um, uh, as I get more and more projects, I'm able to kind of say it's it's people I want to work with because I know that we we get on really well and that we we generate good story. Um, so we just we just worked very closely. We knew it was going to be a, a prequel novel, and that uh, it was leading up to the, it was the story of why he why he left. So I think the cover of the book is him kind of quitting, isn't it? It's kind of hanging back the conversation. That that's where we know uh, the book is going to end. So it's the story leading up to that, following the tracking the path of um, why a man who is a, above all um, epitomizes Starfleet. Um, comes to the point where he believes that he has no place in this institution anymore, and that's a story I love. Oh, uh, you know how how people gain affinity and lose affinity with institutions is uh, with with group identities or um, social identities, and how they lose that and become outliers or outsiders. It's just a story I, I, I'm really interested in. Uh, so so I was there for it, uh, and that it, that it happened to be like the major series that everyone was talking about was just just incredible yeah well and now that i'm talking to you and i can mm. see uh, um some of your interests and in things that outside mm. of star trek i could see why kirsten Beyer would go to you and would think that you were the person to do this especially with the way that you wrote about cardassia that mm. the um the fall of the romulan empire and the, the you know Basically, what you had to do, and um, it's funny because if you read my review of your your book, I basically said, mm. "Well, and I'm going to get into some more details about this." But you had a magic trick to pull because you had an A, B, C, D storyline, and you had to make um, the political machinations <laughs> of this crisis <laughs> exciting, you know. And uh, yeah. I, I think. One of the reasons why this book sung to me, my father was a political scientist uh, mm -hmm. who was a, an expert in bureaucracy. And so oh, wow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, be still my beating heart. <laughs> and so, so for me, it was funny because I wondered when I was writing my review of it, how much of this book was just made for me. Because one of the reasons why the series Picard worked for me and I watched the, the entire series before I read your book um, mm. and went back and read it as a prequel mm. and I'm actually glad I did it that way um, mm. but um, the reason why I was so excited to read it was because whenever I heard about his mission and the bureaucracy and all the things he had to do I'm one of the few people that was like awesome what happened? <laughs> like how did that work and yeah, yeah. I, I have a whole bit at the start where I'm going, logistics, it's like magic. <laughs> and I really think it is. I just, I get really excited about large numbers of people coming together and doing really good things. I, I just think it's a, it's an amazing thing. Uh, and this is what they try to do in this book. And it, and it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work this time. Yeah. Uh, Picard has an impossible mission. He knows mm, this at the beginning, mm. but we're going to try to do whatever we can. And we we know that we know that, but I don't think I don't think he does. I I, I think at the start he feels like it's um, you know the the hand of history has landed on his shoulder. You know, come the hour, come the man, kind of thing. My whole career has has brought me to this moment and this great task, uh, and uh, I I am here facing Dunkirk, and I'm going to turn this into victory in Europe. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It doesn't right. work that way. And why it's so important when we're, because what we talk about on this show is arcs, 
and why it's such an important thing for Picard, uh, um, and why it was so important for setting up the show, mm -hmm. is that he's always succeeded. He saved the Federation mm -hmm. from two Borg invasions. He, he, he was there. Um, you know, he saved the timeline and first contact. Mm -hmm. All these things. He's always been able to save everyone he tried to save. Uh, for the most part. Now, there was the episode with the um, Bajoran Ensign who... Which Ensign I always, Rowe. Um, Ensign Rowe? No, it was the one that died. Uh, it was the Lord. Okay. But I always oh, thought I that... Was, yeah. Yeah, I always yeah. thought that was an important episode because it was a time where his mission failed. In mm. what, and I know some Star Trek fans have had a problem with the fact that Picard had failed so miserably on this. Mm. But I think... And look, you know, I have, a, I have my father just passed away last year. He was in his mm -hmm. 80s. But mm -hmm. how wonderful is it to get to see our heroes get old and mm -hmm. fragile? And I loved that about this show. And I, mm -hmm. so what was it like to write, you know, Picard failing at this mission? It seemed like it was such an important arc, part of setting up the arc for the series. Yeah, it really was. I mean, the the book's only ever going to end on a downer, which is, I think, is something you've got to be, you're 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 thinking through very hard because this is Star Trek, uh, and uh, I think you know people have this expectation that there will be a um, a message of hope or of, of change, uh, but I, I guess we we have to see failure in order to. Um, learn to see that sounds really trite but you, you have to see fail you have to see people fail and i think that gives i i hope that what that does then is give depth if you've read this and you know the show then it kind of brings depth to that story or further depth to that story of him digging deep again uh in the in the televised show and finding that that essential part of him that that pushes him to to look for answers even after so devastating a blow um, and things don't always work out. So you're, you're sort of juggling things. But I, 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 it felt like a very melancholy book to write. Um, people don't end in good places. Um, but at the same time, you've got to have this sort of maybe a kind of tingle of bells, which is the, you know, the promise of what you'll see. Yeah. Uh, in the future, yeah. Yeah, because you know that that those arcs are getting solved in the in the show. Yeah, yeah. So I know that if I was in your position and if I was sitting down to write this story, I would have been very, um, I would have had a lot of focus and energy on the relationship between mm. um, Admiral Picard and Rafi because this is you're going to have to set up their friendship, mm. and they did such a great job of making them feel in that third mm. episode when they introduced Rafi. Like, I felt like, oh, I can see that they were friends. I didn't know from what. So, you know, I I, I would have thought that that putting some attention into their friendship was something that you probably concentrated a lot on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we really wanted to give give Rafi uh, lots of space because she is so crucial. And we, and we don't know her. We know, we know Deanna. We know Will. But who is this person calling him JL, you know? Um, and it's it's all that I one of the one of the enjoyable aspects of doing something like this is that you're reading scripts uh, as they're coming in. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of getting the scripts in and reading them, and the scripts were so rich and so richly imagined, so thematically deep and and tonally very beautiful. Um, and Rafi's all there on the page, uh, and she's there in performance. So it's a, you know, this is exactly what actors do is that they're they're given, you know, actors are just amazing. <laughs> uh, they're, they're given a script and it, it, there's a great deal of depth to these scripts already, but then a, a really good actor working um, uh, with another one is, is, is able to imagine all this emotional depth and, and years of a relationship. So Rafi, I got quite um, involved in, not least because I was, I've, I've said this before, but I was um, writing this book over a summer holiday uh, and my uh, kind of my little girl was sort of, mommy, are you coming out to play today? And I'm going, no, I must work. <laughs> There's a lot of that goes on the page with Rafi, who's kind of missing important soccer matches. But, you know, at least she's saving uh, billions of Romulans. <laughs> right. I'm imaginatively saving billions of Romulans. So uh, there's a, that, that kind of maternal guilt of, of not being present uh, is there with Rafi. <laughs> so I channeled that, yeah. Now, you mentioned something that I think is you had a really unique relationship to the show beyond mm. the fact that you were writing the prequels. 
the prequel, but you you had the scripts coming in. And what was that experience like reading it at the script phase? I mean, you're having to you're not also not reading it like anyone else would because you're reading it automatically thinking about how you're going to tell mm. your story. So th that sounds really fascinating to me. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's uh, whatever you're imagining, it's it's that exciting and it's and it's that interesting. And um, and you're, you're you're seeing kind of scripts revise as well. So you're seeing the stories deepen uh, and see the stories come together. So I think it's it's like seeing um, it was it's mirroring your own experience as a novelist uh, when you're working on a very big project and you've got the you know you've got these sketchy bits that are here and here but you're you're working on a bit over here and then a you know you write something there and you go oh that's what needs to go into that earlier bit or um, oh now I understand why I wrote that scene that way because it was building up to this one so seeing all that kind of um, I guess it was like seeing um, uh, on a piece of tapestry or embroidery seeing new colours come in and uh, seeing that thread sort of uh, working in. Um, and I think what I had to do was was not, um, uh, because, you know, you're seeing aspects of the story change as well. I had to keep quite focused on my sense that I was writing a prequel. Mm. Uh, so I didn't have to worry too much about how this story was going to turn out. I just needed to know the kind of parameters of how it was starting and the big messages um, of how it was starting so I tried not to worry about what was going on over here at the end of the story and just keep my focus on what I'm doing here how do I write it and construct it in such a way that if they do change the plot <laughs> I, I I don't have to rewrite uh you know half a book so um but it helped that it was a prequel right and so you're seeing these stories before like most of us we saw the trailer at comic-con we got like mm. little clues here and there did you have a moment that was the most like oh my god is this really happening oh i just spent i mean i mean it, it was a whole process of oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god i can't believe i'm working on this it's so cool and then the irony is is that uh, uh uh i think we didn't get it in the uk for a few days <laughs> After, so you'd all seen episode one in the States and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> about over here. So it was, uh, I think it was a couple of days or something. Oh, it was like 12 hours that you, you all got it, you all got it, you know, that evening. And then I had to wait for it to turn up on uh, whichever channel we get it on over here. So it was really funny. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. No, and I got to say, um, the, the, I was really impressed by how you weave the storylines in, in this book. Um, it's a top-notch job of multiple storylines. There was, um, because there's um, there's several years that this story takes mm -hmm. place over. There's um, A, B, C, and D storylines that are mm -hmm. planting seeds for 10 hours of television. Mm -hmm. So um, at the same time, like you're dealing with characters like, for example, Jordy is there. Uh, mm -hmm. Worf is briefly there because we find out that there's some controversy over him um, stepping up, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so 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 there's you had a lot of things, mm -hmm. a lot of balls to juggle here for to to keep those storylines straight. Mm -hmm. Are, did you outline or did you write? Oh yeah, God yeah, absolutely yes. So, I mean, the name of the game in in this kind of. Um, uh, uh, because uh, uh, you you invariably end up writing these novels very quickly. I think um, mm -hmm. uh, seven weeks probably I, I wrote this in, uh, but the outline was extremely, extremely detailed and we, we'd really thought through what we were going to do. And did um, you outline with Kirsten Beyer? The... That's right. Yes, and okay. and also with um, Dayton Ward, who who knows who knows Trek backwards. Uh, you know. Um, uh, so and, and we took we took time over things like that. They are very good at thinking about things like um, who's going to take command of the Enterprise, because that's the kind of thing I would forget about because I'd be going story, story, story. And they'd be going, oh, no, hang up. We've got, you know, there are these things that we need to that we need to think about that that will matter uh, and that do matter. Um, so that's when you, you know, writing, uh, uh, having a, a sort of group of people around you that you're sounding these ideas off is, is really important. Um, so uh, so yes, we we outlined um, in in detail, uh, and um, and then uh, I find once you have the outline, then um, 
the thing about the thing about writing novels is it's 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 very lonely, uh, and um, you have to keep your focus. Uh, uh, you, you've got to you've got to be quite focused on something intensely. So I like to do it as quickly as possible. <laughs> so uh, the actual sitting down and putting words on the page, it's like, you know, I, I just want to get this done. I want this book finished. So that outlining stage is, is really, really important um, because it means that, uh, you know, you're not sitting down one morning going, what the hell am I meant to be doing? Um, particularly when you've got, you know, you've got uh, uh, lots of demands that, you know, I've got quite a young daughter, so I, I don't want to be spending um 15 hours a day trying to get a thousand words out I want to be I want to be working and then yeah yeah exactly absolutely well and um so a good tie-in writer has to understand that you have the benefit of writing characters that they already know a little bit and Mm -hmm. so but you had to get in the headspace of Picard did you take any special steps to um to try to think through Picard's arc on this? Did you watch particular episodes or or anything like that? Or did you, you feel like- Yes, I, yeah, I sort of, uh, the way I write it, I, uh, I don't have very strong visual imagination, but I, 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 I voice matters a great deal to me. Uh, so to sort of have a sense of, uh, so I watched episodes just to kind of tune into speech patterns and things. Um, but what I wanted to be very careful that I was doing was that uh, this wasn't a next generation novel. This was a Star Trek Picard novel. So I wanted to make sure that tonally it was in line with those scripts. And tonally, Star Trek Picard is is quite different from Next Generation. I think what's, you know, the Orville is probably slightly closer to Next Gen. I mean, it's, it, you know, it take out the silliness. But the 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 other one, you know, take lift out Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> and then basically you've got, you've pretty much got Next Gen. Um but Star Trek Picard is a different show. It's 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 more melancholy. Uh, it's much more autumnal. Uh, it's about uh, yeah, it's about it's about the autumn of somebody's life, uh, and that's very different from and the Federation, year. really. And the Fed, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So this is not you know we're not we're not talking about a superpower at the top of its game. We're talking about doubt and. Um, uh, concern about identity and uh, the extent about about loss of power uh, and loss of effectiveness uh, and and that's very different. So it, it had to be that Picard rather than um, you know the Picard of um, I, I Unification that I watched today, for example. Uh, it's a very different person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so it had to be him. Well, and that's right. And and those of us who have watched Parents Age know that. Mm. our parents when they get older are not the same people that they were when they were younger and, and and i love that the show leaned into mm. picard being older and that he wasn't mm. the big action hero he had to be saved a few times and yeah and- uh, the most moving storyline i think in that respect is is diana's uh where you see her fearfulness for her her surviving child yeah uh, i i found that an extremely moving um performance a really moving narrative as well there's a there's a there's a fear when she looks at her daughter um because she's lost a child uh, and I, I think that's a really really brave place they went actually and really great part mm. as well well performed um so uh so yeah that autumnal vibe to it so and and one of the first commentaries i did on this mm. this podcast was comparing where I thought the writers of of Picard got great lessons, I think, from watching Last Jedi, um, the right lessons, uh, because I'm a big- Oh, I love Last Jedi. I yeah, love me it. Too. Me too. Very good. It's my favorite. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the things that's so important, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, mm. is that, you know, the Federation's not in a good place. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes sense story-wise. They survived the Dominion War and two Borg invasions. And mm-hmm. you know, this and and so and judging from every, you know, we, we've already that that's great fodder for you. That seems like perfectly right <laughs> up your alley. Me that's one of the things that I love too, because I kept thinking about all the stories that were there. I just mm-hmm. just recorded a commentary on why I think um 
it would make sense to cross over Jake Cisco because he would obviously be a war correspondent and somebody yeah. who would who would cover this mm-hmm. and would cover this crisis. And we had the added benefit that his father thought Picard killed his mother. Uh, yeah, yeah, scrape move actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, but when when you think of that wider tapestry mm-hmm. and how Picard, like the I've been so. I, I don't want to get into totally with the mm. fans that are bothered by like the Federation not being perfect. But to me, this, mm. this, this struggle to win back the soul of the Federation. Absolutely. For yeah. one man, that's the heart of the yeah. very vision through Picard. Right? Absolutely. I, I think, uh, yeah, exactly that, that, that if, if Picard has become disillusioned, something something has happened but also i think it's um you, you know star uh, star trek is about uh uh the notion of america as a as a as a, polit- as, a as an experiment in utopia uh, an experiment in creating you know the shining city on the hill and um and we see this in the dispossessed Le Guin's best novel to my mind what happens to yeah what happens to utopia when it's tested and and that's the real the real test utopia isn't static utopia is process how do we preserve what is good how do we when it's under duress how do we not lose the principles how do we keep it going and that's a question that uh star trek is asking through picard and therefore analogously is asking about the united states um, so I think it's it, it's completely, you know, utopia is always going to hit pressures. Will it crack? Will it change? Will it keep going? Uh, and that's what the story is about for me. And it's a very important one to tell, I think. Right. And and it's clear that Kurtzman and Bayer and, and Siobhan were thinking about the border crisis when mm-hmm. when that was going on here and the refugee crisis and the, and the caravan and all that that was happening when they were doing a writer's room. And, and, Mm. but what's interesting to me is that, um, and kudos to you because um, you could not have known what world you were unleashing this book into as far as, (laughs) but also a a storyline. And and I recently interviewed, um, Josh Mallerman from my other podcast who wrote Bird Box and you know he put out a sequel to Bird Box and a huge part of the sequel to this book is the debate over whether you should wear the blindfold or not Mm. and like you know who knew that that would become you know the mask Mm. wearing debate would become such a big thing when he wrote it yep yep and here with this Picard novel you have a Romulan character who is denying the science Mm. left and right um and is trying to say like hey this isn't happening you know mm-hmm. we don't have this concern and i think the um the man who refuses to believe the science where that's when i was talking about a b c and d storyline that's kind of the d storyline here mm-hmm. um that one was obviously yours where did that come from or or, or it came in the outlining process at least that's yeah yeah well i i i mean i think in general we're seeing a sort of uh uh, uh sort of anti-intellectualism and and that 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 was there well before uh you know denying covid or refusing to wear masks that comes from uh, anti anti-vaxxing that comes from obviously climate change denial yeah. um so you know i can't see it so it can't be happening well okay oh yeah these numbers are big <laughs> i don't understand them they can't be true well you know um uh so I, I, so i think that what i was tapping in there uh was this general anti-intellectualism or, or a kind of pride in in ignorance um uh that is, is very dispiriting um and so i guess it's no surprise uh really that that people go well, well you know it's not that bad, is it? Or what's a what's a mask going to do? <laughs> right. So it's it, it's part of what we've been watching for a long time. So um, right, and this is one of the things that to me made this uh, a, a superior work of of, of tie in fiction is that I you. felt like 
there was lots of really heavy political themes that were throughout this book as well. Um, that this isn't just for the, the um, and I'm not criticized because I'm one of these people. Like, it's not just for the nerds who like know exactly like the call sign numbers or, or as John <laughs> Ordover says, you know, he got the job editing Star Trek books because he knew Spock's blood type. And oh, wow. I was not sure I could tell you that. <laughs> Right. I mean, those of us who know those things are important, but I know those things. (laughs) But I think for a casual Star Trek fan, I think that this book would also work Mm. because I think it it just adds so much depth to the show. But it also it it says a lot about our world today, partially because it is a prequel to a show that says a lot about our world today. Mm. And and so I was very impressed with that. Now, that being said, um, one of my things that um, I I refuse to like, I gave this book five stars. I loved it. Good. Uh, as long as that was out of five. <laughs> out of five, I gave it five. Out of twenty. See, yeah. um, see, so you can see that I always ask a scale, so you know I'm not uh, <laughs> scientifically minded. But my, it's funny because like I just my style in writing reviews because I've been I have over a thousand book reviews on my blog is that I always have to find something that I kind of like push or pull with. And you didn't like the swearing, did you? No, no, I was fine with. Oh right, I'll tell you. You've got to say the swearing. Okay, I'll I'll shut up. (laughs) Now, my two favorite characters on the show. Now, this is more of a problem that I had with the Mm. show than I had with your novel. Oh, that's their problem. Okay. (laughs) But Laris and and is it Zaban? The Zaban, yeah, Zaban, yeah, yeah. My favorite characters on the show. I don't mm. care that she's a Romulan with an Irish accent. I can live with that. Um, Lot, lots of planets have an island. <laughs> right. They were my two favorite characters, and he left them at the chateau. If you have Romulan spies who are trained, you take them on the mission, right? Take them on the mission. Yeah, the- you you might do. You might do. You might not want to get them into trouble. There might be, yeah. Now I wondered though. There's a Romulan character who betrays Picard in this mm. story, and the whole time because I wasn't looking at names right away, I assumed it was Shaban, right? That mm. and that that was the and it seemed like him being involved in the rescue mission and Laris being involved in the rescue mission seemed like a logical mm. way to deepen their friendship. So my only thing, and I don't know if this was like studio mm. notes or whatever, but it seemed like that was a missed opportunity to introduce those characters and to deepen those characters. I don't know if that was something you um, talked about. We thought of putting them in that bit of the story, actually. They, 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 uh, we sort of originally uh, conceived that bit of the story with the, with the possibility of using them. And then the comic strip uh, happened and, and their story was was there instead uh, uh, so we kind of went are we going to have them there no they're going to be over there so but we we loved the senator and that we knew this story bit of story had to so that's one of those things where you're you're writing story where you're going with this possibility that it might involve these people so uh, but you're trying to construct a story that's strong on its own terms yeah i knew there was a very lot good of very good i knew there was a lot of <laughs> i haven't read very the, good the, the comments very good yet. I will. I do want to read them, but um, yeah, but they're, they're they're great. <laughs> but that was the only thing that, like, because I kept waiting for them to have more. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and so and and again, I think that was more of a. Obviously, it's because they were in the graphic novel, but yeah, but yeah, and I did think and and look, it's not every tie-in novel I give five stars to because. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I don't say that in an insulting way. I read a lot of Italian novels. Um, you, have, you haven't read any of my other ones yet, so. Uh. <laughs> I think it's up there. I definitely got to read your stuff with Cardassia. And, and I think you'd really go for that. I think you'd actually really enjoy the Tilly novel, which is kind of like the happy version of um, Last Best Hope. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that, because we're talking about the <laughs> Trek story and arcs. Mm. So, so. You know, what was your, what were you given, what was your marching orders with Tilly's art? Because I love Tilly as a character. I think she's a great. Of course you do. She's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, it's Tilly's prequel story. It's, uh, it's how Tilly comes to join Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, young 
it's a it's a young adult buildings roman it's uh how tilly goes to the stars it's called the way to the stars and it's about the decisions that tilly makes that take her to starfleet uh so it's a it's a story about a young woman uh uh finding her role in life uh and again i sort of conceptualized it as a, a as a, a a feminist novel it's uh sort of she's surrounded by uh many women who influence her uh, uh for good or bad or for uh indifferently um so uh i kind of um uh, i just thought oh, let's give her a set of female mentors and role models that she can bounce off and uh see what kind of life she can lead so it's like the it's like the happy version of um picard's story it's someone uh much earlier in the history of the federation uh <laughs> right. choosing her path into starfleet as opposed to someone later uh leaving it so uh so it's a very Star Trek book, <laughs> a very Tilly book. <laughs> well, and I want to, another compliment I want to give to, to your Picard novel too, is that one thing that I complain about with, with some Star Trek and one thing that, um, that I, that I, I would love to see writers put more of a stamp on. And I think Discovery did a good job with this a little mm. bit. They started to do this, which is to remind people they are in space <laughs> they are in, <laughs> you know i think discovery does it well with like having the cameras go upside down and come like yeah, and, yeah. up and down and and in the very early in discovery they 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 actually like paid attention to the fact that they need to control gravity or, mm. or air supply and all those things and i and there were enough little nods in there to the fact that space is wide and long in your novel that i was like Okay, she gets it. I'm glad uh, because every time I read a Star Trek novel, I'm always like, "Are they going to remember space?" I really worry about that because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm quite lazy about that kind of thing. Uh, so I really, really worry about it. So maybe that's why I, I always remember to put it in. Oh, these are vast distances, you know. Yeah. How are we getting away with this? It's not like catching a bus. It's that Douglas Adams thing, you know, you think it's a long way down the road to the chemist. It's the last peanuts to space. <laughs> so um, it's big. It's really big. Right. Which is one of the reasons why I think as an adult, like I love Star Trek, the motion picture, which I did mm. when I was a kid. But now I think it's the most sci-fi of, of, of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it. And, and I look, I'm one of the other things about me is I'm an astronomy nerd. So like, uh, OK, yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Enterprise. Um, mm. I like seasons one and three, which is weird to say, like, mm. but that's exactly the seasons I like. But one of my favorite moments on Enterprise is the scene when they're on another planet and they're looking mm. for our for our star. And I was like, yeah, because you you would do that. <laughs> you would do that, yeah. You yeah. might not take your dog down uh, to a planet that's never been visited before, but yeah, you might not do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, <laughs> Uda, it was great talking to you because uh, My pleasure. I, really, I really enjoyed this novel and um, thank you. you know, to my to my shame, I'm going to have to go back and 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 make sure that I read all the Garrick stuff because as, as a great he's he's one of my favorite characters. But um, I will say I have and since the time that I read this Picard novel, I have mm. been collecting paperbacks with your name on it. So we like to, yeah. Over there, I have a lot of dickheads reading to do for the Philip K. Dick mm -hmm. thing uh, this mm -hmm. year, and then hopefully next year I'm gonna chill out on it a little bit. And well, you you read some Cardassia, and I'd love to come back and talk Cardassia with you. So. Yeah, I would love to too because I I you know, and like I said, you know, with my father being mm -hmm. who he is, um, I definitely get into those things, and it's uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's funny because my dad didn't read fiction, right? He, okay right yeah. yeah 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 and uh but we had a rule in our house when i was growing up that um mm. he would buy any book for me as long as i proved to him that i read it mm. right and then uh so he got me a lot of science fiction when i was a mm -hmm. kid That's but we really also good. talked about things over dinner and one of the reasons why i think the interplay between bureaucracy and science fiction mm. like, meant a lot to me is because I spent a lot of time talking to him mm. and even if he like didn't get it for example the first time I read The Dispossessed mm. I called mm -hmm. up my father and I said dad let me ask you a few questions about this science fiction book mm -hmm. and then I had to get him through all the ideas 
But I will say, um, I thought a lot about um, how he would have taken some of the things that were going on in this with the Mm. with the Romulan mission and that is a testament to what you did with this book I'm really it's very kind thank you no, thank I, you very much thank I you. mean it um it's a very um impressive work of the the, the ABCD and C storylines uh, I can I can see where it would be very helpful to have two friends in Dayton and and Kirsten to throw ideas off of um but yeah. in the end you <laughs> You were the one that had to stitch it together, right? I did, yeah. They were all very it was it was quite a tight schedule and they were all you could be all right. Can we can we bring you snacks? And I'm and I, I'm good to go. I'm I'm happy to write this one. Uh so I think they were they were quite anxious for me, but I was just I had a I had a ball with this book. It, it, you know, it's just all my all my subjects and um, I loved it. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Okay, and are you coming back to Star Trek anytime soon, or? or uh... Uh, I'd like to, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I, in fact, I have my uh, uh, book coming out this month, the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. So uh, uh, I've I've written a book which is sort of uh, the conceit is that I've kind of interviewed her, and you know we've we've I've sort of typed that up and written her life story. So it's a sort of first person account of Catherine Janeway's uh, life and times. So. Uh, from childhood to um, admiralty. So well, anyone uh, that uh, is new to this podcast, if they go back in the feed, I interviewed, I'm from Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> is my hometown. So Catherine Janeway and I share a hometown. Yeah. And um, in fact, I interviewed the two uh, organizers who put up the monument. Um, oh, lovely. Yeah. In Bloomington. And um, the monument is actually about two blocks from the last place I lived in Bloomington before. That's I very cool. So I've seen Scotty's monument in Linlithgow, a uh, future birthplace of Montgomery Scott. <laughs> great. Well, yeah, that's what they're, they're doing. They have a, a bust, mm. a mold, and then a plaque that has, and one of the best, one of my favorite things about this memorial or this future mm. home statue is that on the plaque, it has a map where it shows the, the the where they started in the delta quadrant to, to her. and that's great uh, yeah that's lovely i'm gonna look yeah. that up online that's really cool yeah yeah it's um uh, it's a fun interview because uh we got to really geek out about janeway and mm. and uh you know some of it like it was funny before the interview started we started talking about what part of town we thought she'd live in and like and, uh, well, you can see my take as, as somebody who's only ever been as uh, well, I've been to L.A., but uh, the furthest Midwest I've been is Chicago. So you can uh, you can you can have a look and laugh at me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited to read that. Um, I that that's that connect that hometown connection with Janeway is something that I really appreciate. And um, Janeway is a character I think is underrated. I. I used to get things thrown at me for saying that I thought she was a better captain than Picard. Oh, ouch! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, which is which ouch. is a heavier debate, but um, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at what she did on Scorp and just Scorpion alone, like to save her crew, come on, you know. But uh, on the other hand, Tuvix. <laughs> That's true. On the other hand, Tuvix. Well played, Una. Well played. <laughs> All right. Um, as everyone can see, uh, a Star Trek nerd down to her heart. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for joining us. And My pleasure. Uh, we'll have you back when, uh, to talk Garrick at some point. Yes, please. Always happy to do that.